Sherlock Holmes. The Red-Headed League, Part 2 Now it is a fact, gentlemen, as you may see for yourselves, that my hair is of a very full and rich tint, so that it seemed to me that if there was to be any competition in the matter, I stood a good chance as any man that I had ever met. Vincent Spaulding seemed to know so much about it that I thought he might prove useful, so I just ordered him to put up the shutters for the day and to come right away with me. He was very willing to have a holiday, so we shut the business up and started off for the address that was given to us in the advertisement. I never hoped to see such a sight as that again, Mr. Holmes. From north, south, east, and west, every man who had a shade of red in his hair had tramped into the city to answer the advertisement. Fleet Street was choked with red-headed folk, and Pope's Court looked like a Corster's orange barrow. I should not have thought there were so many in the whole country as were brought together by that single advertisement. Every shade of colour they were, straw, lemon, orange, brick, Irish setter, liver, clay— but as Spalding said, there were not many who had the real vivid flame-coloured tint. When I saw how many there were waiting, I would have given up in despair, but Spalding would not hear of it. How he did it I could not imagine, but he pushed and pulled and butted until he got me through the crowd and right up to the steps which led to the office. There was a double stream upon the stair, some going up in hope and some coming back dejected. But we wedged in as well as we could and soon found ourselves in the office. "'Your experience has been a most entertaining one,' remarked Holmes, as the client paused and refreshed his memory with a huge pinch of snuff. "'Pray continue your very interesting statement.' "'There was nothing in the office but a couple of wooden chairs and a deal table behind which sat a small man with a head that was even redder than mine. "'He said a few words to each candidate as he came up, and then he always managed to find some fault in them with which he could disqualify them.' Getting a vacancy did not seem to be such a very easy matter after all. However, when our time came, the little man was more favourable to me than to any of the others, and he closed the door as we entered, so that he might have a private word with us. "'This is Mr. Jabbers Wilson,' said my assistant, "'and he is willing to fill a vacancy in the League.' "'And he is admirably suited for it,' said the other. "'He has every requirement. "'I cannot recall when I have seen anything so fine.' He took a step backwards, cocked his head on one side, and gazed at my hair until I felt quite bashful. Then suddenly he plunged forward, wrung my hand, and congratulated me warmly on my success. "'It would be injustice to hesitate,' said he. "'You will, however, I am sure, excuse me for taking an obvious precaution.' With that he seized my hair on both his hands and tugged until I yelled with pain. "'There is water in your eyes,' said he, and he released me. I perceive that all is as it should be. But we have to be careful, for we have twice been deceived by wigs and once by paint. I could tell you tales of cobbler's wax which would disgust you with human nature. He stepped over to the window and shouted through it at the top of his voice that the vacancy was filled. A groan of disappointment came up from below, and the folk all trooped away in different directions until there was not a red head to be seen except my own and that of the manager. "'My name,' said he, "'is Mr. Duncan Ross, "'and I am myself one of the pensioners "'upon the fund left by our noble benefactor. "'Are you a married man, Mr. Wilson? "'Have you a family?' "'I answered that I had not. "'His face fell immediately. "'Dear me,' he said gravely, "'that is very serious indeed. 
I am sorry to hear you say that. The fund was, of course, for the propagation and spread of redheads, as well as for their maintenance. It is exceedingly unfortunate that you should be a bachelor. My face lengthened at this, Mr. Holmes, for I thought that I was not to have the vacancy after all. But after thinking it over for a few minutes, he said that it would be all right. In the case of another, said he, the objection might be fatal, but we must stretch a point in favour of a man with such a head of hair as yours. When shall you be able to enter upon your new duties? Well, it is a little awkward, for I have a business already, said I. Oh, never mind about that, Mr. Wilson, said Vincent Spaulding. I shall be able to look after that for you. What would be the hours? I asked. Ten to two. Now a pawnbroker's business is mostly done of an evening, Mr. Holmes, especially Thursday and Friday evening, which is just before payday. So it would suit me well to earn a little in the mornings. Besides, I knew that my assistant was a good man, and that he would see to everything that turned up. That would suit me very well, said I. And the pay is four pounds a week. And the work is purely nominal. What do you call purely nominal? Well, you have to be in the office, or at least in the building, the whole time. If you leave, you forfeit your whole position forever. This is very clear upon the point. You don't comply with the conditions if you budge from the office during that time. It's only four hours a day, and I should not think of leaving, said I. No excuse will avail, said Mr. Duncan Ross. Neither sickness, nor business, nor anything else. There you must stay, or you lose your billet. And the work? is to copy out the Encyclopaedia Britannica. There is the first volume of it in the press. You will find your own ink, pens and blotting paper, but we provide this table and chair. Will you be ready tomorrow? Certainly, I answered. Then good-bye, Mr. Jabez Wilson, and let me congratulate you once more on the important position which you have been fortunate enough to gain. He bowed me out of the room, and I went home with my assistant, hardly knowing what to say or do. I was so pleased at my own good fortune. Well, I thought over the matter all day, and by the evening I was in low spirits again, for I had quite persuaded myself that the whole affair must be some great hoax or fraud, though what its object might be I could not imagine. It seemed altogether past belief that anyone could make such a will, or that they would pay such a sum for doing anything so simple as copying out the Encyclopaedia Britannica. Vincent Spaulding did what he could to cheer me up, but by bedtime I had reasoned myself out of the whole thing. However, in the morning I determined to have a look at it anyhow. So I bought a penny bottle of ink, with a quill pen, and seven sheets of full-scap paper. I started off for Pope's Court. Well, to my surprise and delight, everything was as right as possible. The table was set out ready for me, and Mr. Duncan Ross was there to see that I got on fairly to work. He started me off upon a letter A, and then he left me, but he would drop in from time to time to see that all was right with me. At two o'clock he bade me good day, complimented me upon the amount I had written, and locked the door of the office after me. This went on for day after day, Mr. Holmes, and on Saturday the manager came in and planked down four golden sovereigns for my week's work. It was the same next week, and same the week after. Every morning I was there at ten, and every afternoon I left at two. By degrees Mr. Duncan Ross took to coming in only once a morning, and then, after a time, he did not come in at all. Still, of, of course, I never dared to leave the room for an instant, for I was not sure when he might come, 
and the billet was such a good one, it suited me so well that I would not risk the loss of it. Eight weeks passed away like this, and I had written about abbots and archery and armour and architecture and attica, and hoped with diligence that I might get on to the bees before very long. It cost me something in fool's cap, and I had pretty nearly filled a shelf with my writings. And then suddenly the whole business came to an end. To an end? Yes, sir. And no later than this morning. I, I went to work as usual at ten o'clock, but the door was shut and locked, with a little square of cardboard hammered into the middle of the panel with a tack. Here it is. You can read it for yourself. He held up a piece of white cardboard, about the size of a sheet of note-paper. It read in this fashion. The Red-Headed League is dissolved. October ninth, 1890. Sherlock Holmes and I surveyed this curt announcement, and the rueful face behind it, until the comical side of the affair so completely overtopped every other consideration that we both burst out into a roar of laughter. "'I cannot see that there is anything funny,' cried our client, flushing up to the roots of his flaming head. "'If you can do nothing better than laugh at me, I can go elsewhere.' "'No, no,' cried Holmes, shoving him back into the chair from which he had half risen. I really wouldn't miss your case for the world. It is the most refreshingly unusual. But there is, if you will excuse me saying so, something just a little funny about it. Pray, what steps did you take when you found the card upon the door? I was staggered, sir. I did not know what to do. Then I called at the offices round, and none of them seemed to know anything about it. Finally I went to the landlord, who is an accountant living on the ground floor, and I asked him if he could tell me what had become of the Red-Headed League. He said that he had never heard of any such body. Then I asked him who Mr. Duncan Ross was. He answered that the name was new to him. Well, said I, the gentleman at number four. What, the red-headed man? Yes. Oh, said he. His name was William Morris. He was a solicitor, and was using my room as a temporary convenience until his new premises were ready. He moved out yesterday. Where could I find him? Oh, at his new offices. He did tell me the address. Um, yes, 17 King Edward Street, near St. Paul's. I started off, Mr. Holmes, but when I got to that address, it was a manufactory of artificial kneecaps, and no one in it had ever heard of either Mr. William Morris or Mr. Duncan Ross. End of Part 2